Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Catch Kate podcast. Today, we are continuing our series of interviews with people who have a very strong connection to nature. And I have a super exciting guest for you today, a woman in science. Um, her name is Anya. And without further ado, I will let her introduce herself and what she does in nature. Hi, Kate. Thank you so much for having me on today. I'm sure I know you already, but it's actually it's great to see you virtually. I haven't seen you in so long. Um, so my name is Anya Lisa Shannon and I'm a qualified marine biologist. So I have my bachelor's and my master's degree in marine biology. I studied my bachelor's in NUIG in Galway. And then I decided to further my studies down in UCC, where I did my master's. And I'm currently based in Cork City right now. I'm a contractor for a company called Bordish Gawara, which is a sister company of Board Bia. So they focus in on the agricultural industry. So then Bordish Gawara focuses in on the seafood industry, Ireland's Seafood Development Agency. So I'm currently working with them on a project called the Aquaculture Remote Classroom. Uh, aka the ARC. So what we do is we travel all around Ireland um, on the ARC unit visiting primary schools and teaching them all about the aquaculture and fishing industry really here in Ireland. So we mainly focus on uh, fifth and sixth primary school students but we've actually recently launched um, a careers day so we're going to start focusing in on secondary schools and trying to talk to students in secondary schools about the potential careers in the seafood industry as well here in Ireland. Oh wow. Yeah, that's, wow. <laughs> that's so interesting. And for you, um, what would be like a typical day for you? So do you actually go to the classrooms in Cork or how how does it work? Is it organized beforehand? Yeah, so basically what we do is, is there's two of us on board the ARC, there's two project facilitators and I'd be the marine biologist and my colleague then would be a nutritional scientist. So what we do is we actually have 450 schools currently on the waiting list. So there's a massive, massive interest. So we will contact the schools on the registration list. They kind of email us and we'll add them to like an Excel sheet. We'll contact them. We try to kind of focus in on schools, mainly on like the Wild Atlantic Way kind of route basically because it's a coastal route and we try to focus in on rural areas where fishing and aquaculture is most active so we'll contact the schools that have registered a visit we'll let them know like what county we're in you know this month and if they're willing to do a visit so once they kind of come back and say yeah we're here we're, we're willing to do let's just say a Wednesday we will park up the unit so it's a portable unit but it's it's hard to explain it's um it's actually picked up by another truck so we the Dennis, our truck driver, he travels around with us as well. So he picks up the unit on the truck and he travels to whatever school that needs to be. We will park the ARC unit in the school for the day. And the workshop normally takes about, it's essentially a full kind of school day for the, for the kids. So we start off at about 9.30 in the morning and it finishes at about 2 in the afternoon. And it kind of ticks all the boxes as well of the school curriculum. So essentially the teacher can like sit back and relax while we teach the kids in the classroom. So they'll come into the portable like classroom as well. And so our modules that we talk about with the students are, we kind of talk about marine species in Ireland, some of them that we might farm, like the biology, the life cycle of them. Then we kind of focus in on geography and climate for the second module. 
we talk about how Ireland is like a temperate climate, you know, so it's perfect for farming on the land and fishing and like farming underwater as well. Then we talk about health and nutrition, so the benefits of eating seafood. We talk about socioeconomics, so kind of jobs in kind of coastal rural communities, how kind of fishing and aquaculture can provide jobs to many people in like coastal rural communities here in Ireland. And then we finish up and we talk about sustainability. So the effects that overfishing can have on, you know, marine species and, you know, how our population is ever growing. I think is, I mean, I don't just preach to the kids and say, oh, you need to eat fish every day or, oh, you need to eat farmed fish. Like we're also trying to get into them. You know, it's good to reduce your meat intake, you know, try to change it up, go veggie maybe two or three times a week. You know, so I like I like to kind of my favorite part is the sustainability part, definitely, because you can kind of make it your own. And it's really a discussion for like the fifth and sixth class students, you know, so like we kind of do a lot of hands up. We can do a lot of talking and, you know, really kind of brings the entire workshop together. But it's not just like the workshop isn't just like a full day of just PowerPoint slides. So like inside the ARC unit, you know, we have like three massive screens. We have LED lighting. It's like with furniture, like it's the total opposite of a regular classroom. So as soon as the kids step on, and the, all the windows are tinted as well. Like, so they're like, oh my God, this is unreal. They absolutely love it. So like we do loads of fun activities as well. Like we have VR headsets. Um, we have a mapping activity. So the kids will kind of talk about, you know, they need to discuss the specific conditions. Some marine species need to survive. Some of them need, like salmon will need deep water, strong currents. So they'll have to figure out where to place like a salmon mussel or oyster farm on a specific area, depending on the conditions that the marine species need. Then we do a building block activity for the socioeconomic side. So we talk about how one core business, so that could be your muscle farm, especially down in Cork, muscle farming is huge. So you talk about how one core business can support a whole community and can keep jobs in that local community. And you can live off natural resources on the land as long as it's done sustainably. So these people don't have to move to bigger cities like Dublin, you know, Cork City, Galway City. And then you can kind of stay in your area because rural Ireland has such a strong sense of community, really, I find that nobody really wants to leave there anymore because it's just, we have just such beautiful coastlines around Ireland. So that's the kind of third activity we do. And then the very last activity, at the end of the workshop, we do like this massive quiz. So we have these like buzzers. So the kids will be divided into groups and they'll have like these buzzers they can like place on the table. Jeez, it's absolutely manic. They're, they're so funny, but yeah, it just ties in the whole workshop together. And like we ask some questions about the workshop to see if they've actually learned anything. And I mean, kids are absolute sponges. So they will like, no matter what school you go to, no matter if you go to a city school or um coastal school, like, I mean, they all learn something. So it's great to see. Yeah, so I absolutely love my job. Huh. That's great. I, I like you're probably one of, you know, not a loads. Loads of people don't say that. So you're very blessed. Um, yeah. And so when you started with um, uh, the company or Bordish Kamara, yeah. did you start in this role or did you have to move into it? Say if somebody was looking to move into that kind of space, did you have to start in a different position? No, so I actually, my previous jobs kind of before this, I kind of done like a year experience working like in the fisheries kind of side of things. So I was out at sea a lot. I'd be kind of out for three, four weeks at a time as like a, it's called a, a foreign observer 
scheme. So basically any foreign scientific vessels that come into Irish waters, you have to have an Irish scientist on board to make sure that everything that they do is legal. It's the same as kind of having a fisheries observer on board fishing vessels. Um, so I was doing a lot of that once I graduated and then I kind of finished up on that COVID hit. I didn't have a job. I was on the PUP for like a few months, kind of like, geez, what am I doing? What am I doing myself? Because, you know, like working in the marine industry, it's great when you get a job, but geez, it's it's soul destroying if you don't get a job, really, because it's such yeah. a competitive industry, you know? Yes. Um, yes. So then someone actually sent me the job. One of my friends sent it to me. It came up on LinkedIn or something. She was like, you would be absolutely perfect for this. Because I always had an interest in science communication. I did a lot of, I did another kind of job with um, STEAM, so STEAM Limited, so STEAM stands, stands for uh, Science, Technology, Engineering, Arts and Mathematics. So I did visit primary schools before and kind of taught kids, um, you know, science experiments and stuff. So I knew like science communication was like definitely the route I wanted to go down. My friend sent me this and it was mainly, you know, I mean, you had to have experience in the aquaculture industry. Aquaculture industry is essentially farming underwater which I didn't have experience in it but I went for the interview anyway I had a lot of science communication experience and I suppose I had a lot of fisheries experience so this was you know it was totally different I mean we studied aquaculture in college but I don't know like they mainly I found in college anyway they mainly focus in on the fisheries kind of side of things they do a little bit on aquaculture but not a lot so I knew a bit but when I got the job um I really had to kind of brush up on my like aquaculture, you know, kind of what the species we farm in Ireland and how they're farmed and stuff. But I mean, geez, you ask me any question now and I could probably give you a good answer with it. And I mean, a lot of people don't realize, I mean, the aquaculture industry worldwide has actually surpassed fishing when it comes to how we actually get our seafood to our plate. And there's so much negative stigma around aquaculture. Mm. And I, I think it's just... It's a lot of kind of the fear of the unknown and because it's underwater, you can't really see it. But here in Ireland, we have such strict like rules and regulations when it comes to fish farming. I can't speak for, can't speak for Norway and Scotland. Do you know, I know they do a lot of salmon farming up there and stuff, but I can guarantee you, like I speak for Ireland, I'm saying, I mean, all our salmon, 99% of our salmon is organic. I mean, we do so many things, like where people farm on the land, they, we, we basically copy the same techniques. I'm sure you've heard of um, following, you know, when it comes to changing. So basically, if you're farming your cattle on land, it's a, it's a term called following. You have to move your cattle from field to field so oh, the yeah. field has time to replenish. Because if you just left, it in the same, left the animals in the same field, it would just be destroyed and eventually everything would die off. It would just be crap. So we actually do the same thing with our salmon farms here in Ireland. We try and move them from sea pen to sea pen so that the seabed has time to replenish and as well with the salmon farming we have to make sure it's deep water with like lots of strong currents coming through so anything that you know like fish poop and stuff like that or any food that might sink to the bottom has to be kind of washed away and stuff like that there's loads but if you have any questions throughout the podcast you can ask me any kind of questions that you might have about um aquaculture yeah that's how I got into the job I've been on the project now for two years. I absolutely love it. Like for me, so as I said, like, I mean, it could be in Cork, the job, or it could be up in Donegal. I mean, two, three weeks ago, I was up in Donegal. And you're just traveling all around, basically, to see what kind of schools have, like, registered for a visit. So we'll try and focus in on the coastal regions, like I said. 
And yeah, I mean, it's Monday to Friday or Monday to Thursday. And then you kind of go home and you do your admin work then on the Friday. But I absolutely love it. I mean, you have to love it though, working with kids. You have to, because they're just so high energy. So I mean, you wouldn't be going out on a mad weekend too often and then going in on the Monday because you just wouldn't have the energy for them. So I, I would be a high energy person anyway. So it's perfect. And geez, I get some laugh out of some of the questions they ask as well. They're just... They're, they're brilliant, absolutely love them. Yeah, that's the, the job in a nutshell. <laughs> and regarding, you know, because I've read like articles on farmed salmon and stuff and all different things about it, but like regards wild salmon versus farmed, um, is there a difference in nutritional value and is it possible, do you know, to get the wild salmon? um for people yeah. who might want it I actually love talking about this so much because I'm just such I'm like so I'm really passionate about what I do so like this is I love when people ask me these questions because there's a lot of like negative stigma negative stigma surrounding like farm salmon farm salmon and everyone is kind of saying you know go for your wild salmon I mean wild salmon in Ireland is so scarce at the moment it is more sustainable to eat your farmed salmon compared to your wild because the populations have just been completely decimated. So back in the day, we used to do a fishing method called draft net fishing. So what you did was, so wild salmon start their life in freshwater. Then after about a year or two, they go out to the sea because they get bigger. They kind of migrate up to the North Sea. And then after about two years, maybe about two to three years, they will go back up the river the same river that they um, were born in so they'll go back right up to that river again and they will spawn normally they will die off at this point in their life but some of them can kind of go back down to sea but it's just such a high amount of energy that they use so they generally die off so what um wild salmon fishermen would do is with it's called draftnet fishing so obviously they have to go back up the river again to spawn so they'll kind of wait at the mouth of estuaries Estuary is where the river and sea meet, and they'll just kind of there'll be about three of them standing out there now. It's actually, it is kind of really cool to watch, but they'll like it kind of it did decimate the population. So they'll wait for the salmon to kind of go back up the river again, and they'll be they could be standing there for hours, like, and they'll just see one salmon kind of pop up, kind of surface, and they'll just kind of throw out the net and catch as many salmon as they can. Unfortunately, I think in 2007 that was banned. So it's very few wild fishermen, wild salmon fishermen that can actually use that type of technique now at the moment. It's um, because it just kind of decimated the populations. And you'll never, like, if you see wild salmon, I saw a few actually last summer, but they, you weren't allowed to fish in that area. It was up in Mayo. If you see wild salmon now, wild salmon actually love to swim in schools. So they like to group together. You'll never see that with wild salmon. They'll only be kind of one or two of them together, maybe two or three at most, because they've just been so decimated. The nutritional value is the same for farmed salmon compared to wild salmon. It might be a bit more fatty, I think. I actually, wild salmon is in season at the moment. So I actually saw a bit in the English market in Cork and I was trying to compare the differences. I mean, there's a, you can see the fat lines are a bit thicker when it comes to the farm salmon, which is kind of understandable. I mean, that's, there are always going to be differences when you're buying um, farm species compared to wild species. Obviously, we add the colour into farm salmon, They're like, but that isn't down to anything, anything negative, really. I mean, wild salmon, the reason they're 
um, flesh is pink or orange. It's, it's the diet that they eat. So we feed our farm salmon 100% organic pellets. So they're just, another problem with aquaculture is people are kind of farming fish just to feed other fish, essentially. So that can cause problems too. So what we try and do is we'll try buy, you know, the organic pellets. So just, it's just a lot of fish that people might not eat. You know, the, the crappy bits of the fish that you won't eat, essentially is what it is. So we feed these salmon 100% organic pellets. And obviously the color, it's not... Um, it's not pink so like it is dyed but it's all natural and another problem people have with farm salmon is they think that we pump like a load of antibiotics and a load of like you know pesticides into the water and stuff oh my god if I like if I had a yorp every time someone says that to me I swear to god so here in Ireland if the salmon would be sick or sick let's just say you were only allowed to give them one dose of antibiotics in their entire lifetime so you can give them one kind of set of antibiotics and you have to wait 12 weeks to farm the salmon after that to make sure it's completely left their system. Um, otherwise, you just you just can't farm them. They're so strict in Ireland. Another thing people talk to me about is aren't farm salmon just like packed into this tiny sea pen and they can barely move and all of this? Absolutely not in Ireland either. Can't speak for other countries, as like I said before, but I can speak for Ireland. When it comes to Irish organic salmon, the farm stuff, we have extremely, I think it's one of the lowest stocking densities in the entire world, especially in Europe. So for every 1% to 2%, max 2% salmon in the sea pen, there has to be 99 to 90, 98% open seawater. So they are in deep waters. They're happy, healthy. If you looked at an underwater camera of a salmon in a sea pen, you will see that they are all they're all schooling together, but that's because they're, they naturally, in the wild, that's what they would do if the populations were healthy enough for them to do that. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, have you ever heard of sea lice? I'm sure you probably have if you've been reading up on it. Yeah. So sea lice are an issue, and they're an issue with Irish farm salmon as well. They're an issue all over, but I, the way I see it is, if you are farming your sheep I do not know enough about agriculture now but I know there's a few things they do you know there's pests on land just like there is pests underwater I think don't they do with the fish or not the fish the sheep on land don't they throw them into this bath of stuff to kind of get rid of the ticks and stuff they do loads of stuff anyway to get rid of pests on land so same kind of thing but we have sea lice, obviously, with salmon, and when they're in close proximity with each other, so essentially when they're farmed, then the sea lice will just reproduce like crazy, and that can cause issues. And I have seen some photos of salmon being absolutely covered in sea lice. I've never seen it with the Irish salmon, and I've visited a lot of salmon farms in Ireland, but look, you never know. But one thing we've tried to do to tackle the sea lice here in Ireland is we put these other fish in. They're called um, lump sucker fish. They're basically, they're mad looking things. I think the males are blue and the females are red. Um, you'll see on my Instagram, actually, if you go down really far, you'll see me holding one. They're so cute. But they have a little sucker on their belly. So they will naturally. <laughs> my, dog is in the, my dog is in the room as well, don't worry. Sorry, folks, for the disturbance. There's dogs after entering the room. Okay. <laughs> Just calling them out. There's always a mummy in the background. Back in action, folks. Back in action. So we, obviously, I was saying we talk about um, sea lice when it comes to farm salmon. So we have these other fish that live in the sea pens called lump sucker fish. They have a sucker on their belly and we put artificial kelp 
in the sea pens, they naturally stick to kelp. We can't leave real kelp in there because it would just naturally break down. So we just use artificial kelp and they will stick to the kelp in the sea pens. And they naturally feed on sea lice in the wild. So the salmon kind of know this. What we call this is like a symbiotic relationship where two totally different species live in close proximity with, with each other and they both benefit from living in that close proximity. So the salmon will essentially swim through the kelp. It's like they're getting a spa day. It's just, they just know what's happening. I don't know what it is. It's just animal instinct, I think. So they'll swim through and the wrasse will, or the lump sucker fish, sorry, we do wrasse as well. Wrasse are another fish that will feed on them. So the lump sucker fish will just pick the sea lice off the salmon and it doesn't damage their flesh whatsoever. So the lump sucker fish are getting a free lunch and the salmon are essentially getting a spa day. So like that's what we would do to tackle sea, sea lice. And another thing we do as well is we will kind of put a tarp on top of the salmon pens and we place fresh water in the kind of tarp. So the salmon will then kind of, they'll stay on the tarp because salmon can live in freshwater and seawater, but the sea lice can't. Sea lice are just marine. They will naturally fall off and die as well. So there are loads of different alternatives. There's another guy up, I'm not going to say the county because I think it's very hush hush what he's doing, but he's using um, lasers. So it's like um, specific wavelengths that just kills off the sea lice, but does no damage to the salmon flesh as well. So he's trying out, there's loads of trials now that are coming out and there's just loads of stuff. But that's what we do in Ireland anyway. And like, I mean, when you compare a lot of agriculture produce in Ireland, I think it's only nine to 10% of agriculture produce in Ireland is organic. When you compare that to our Irish farm salmon, it's 99%. You know, there's just a lot of stigma in it. And I mean, there's always- They say on the packet organic. They do. But if you're buying farmed salmon and you always have to check the region. So I actually compared, I was in Dunn's the other day and I picked up a packet of salmon. It didn't say organic. And I picked up, I checked the back of it. It was farmed in Scotland. And then I picked up, it said Irish. It literally said Irish organic salmon. And if it says organic, it's going to be, it's going to be farmed. I mean, when I was in the English market last week, the price difference between two salmon darns of farmed compared to two salmon darns of wild darns of wild was like i think the farmed was 18 euro and then the wild salmon was 53 a huge difference because they're just so decimated at the moment and anyway at the end of the day i mean i would prefer to eat wild salmon i would there's no i mean if, if i had to choose but i really don't see the difference and i think if i put a plate of irish farmed organic salmon down and wild salmon I don't think a lot of people would actually know the difference. It's just the thought of it. But and hopefully, salmon are eating is it crustaceans or what is making them pink? Yeah, yeah. So they'd be picking on kind of bigger kind of animals as well, like plankton, that kind of thing, zooplankton as well. They would be kind of predatory species, so they'll just kind of eat on anything really they can get. And that, yeah, crustaceans as well. So that would naturally dye the flesh pink. So. Yeah, I mean, hopefully in a few years time, maybe not a few, maybe 10, 20 years time, the populations will have kind of come back. But at this day and age, it is actually more sustainable to eat the farm salmon compared to the wild, really. So they're amazing. I absolutely love them. I love eating it as well. So yeah, um, so that's... Um, I was oh, in Super Value the other day and I just see like these big fridges and there's like four fillets of salmon for like 10.99 and I just look at it and I'm like 10.99 four big 
big fillets, you know, and no labels at them at all. So like, is the fishing, you know, do they have a fishing counter or the fish counter yeah. or whatever? Are they, just, are, yeah. are they just buying in like a zillion fillets or like, or like, do you know what goes on there? With the fishmongers, you have to be careful with the fishmongers as well. Some of them might tell you it's kind of wild salmon, but you can be guaranteed it's actually all of it, all of what you're eating is farmed. I'm pretty sure it's like, oh, I can't think of the number, but it's around 90% of the salmon that, that's eaten is all farmed. It's a huge number, like worldwide. But if you, was it frozen? When you went into Super Valley, was it frozen or was it fresh? It was fresh, but it looked like they had been frozen, you know? I would say if there's no labels on it, it's definitely, definitely not Irish salmon. It's more expensive to buy the Irish farm salmon than it is the Norwegian or the Scottish salmon, uh, which is funny because it's imported into Ireland and we're really just getting the farm salmon on our doorstep because, and the reason it's more expensive, the Irish farm salmon is because it is organic. That's why and there isn't any pesticides and- or any of that stuff on it. What about the trout then? Because the last day when I was up the fishmonger, I was like, okay, can you tell me which ones have been caught at sea, like here, like Ballycotton or wherever you like, you know, and your man was like, um, and he, he like, and I was asking about the trout and he was like, that's all farmed. And I was like, can you give me one that's not been farmed? Like, you know, because I just wanted to get something that was local, you know? Yeah, or- yeah. I actually see, look, I know uh, trout is farmed. I'm not going to sit here and pretend that I know a lot about trout because I don't. So yeah. I would just be feeding you crap as the well. Beautiful I, fish, though, I think. They're stunning. Yeah, the colours on them and everything there. But the majority of it will be farmed. And like, it's just, you're still, the thing is, if you buy Irish farmed salmon, you're still keeping jobs in your local community. You know what I mean? You're not buying it from Norway or stuff where the stocking densities are extremely high, that kind of thing. So like people just have this thing of, oh, I want to buy wild salmon. It's it's not, or maybe wild trout. I don't know enough about trout now to say it, but definitely with the wild salmon, it's actually not sustainable. See, the thing with the wild salmon fishermen now is so it's basically all the older fishermen kind of goes back generations. They're the only ones that are allowed to um, fish the wild salmon. And they're given some of the farmers, because the populations have been so decimated, some of the, not the farmers, sorry, some of the fishermen, well, you have to be given a tag. So once you catch your wild salmon, you have to place a tag on their lip and there's a specific number on it. So like if I just went out and I fished a wild salmon, which would be highly illegal, by the way, oh my God, you'd be in so much trouble. Um, and I went up to the fishmongers and I was like, here you go, can I... Um... He probably, you probably get 200 euro for it, but he's not going to buy it off you because if an inspector comes in and sees that there's no tag on the salmon, you are just in like deep trouble. So I think one of the salmon fisherman told me or the, his son I was up at a school a few weeks ago he said they, his dad was only given about four or five tags that's only four or five salmon he's like catch for the summer it's just crazy how little there is at the moment yeah but like buying your farm salmon protected, though. I 100% agree with this so like buying your farm salmon at the moment as long as it's Irish you're still keeping jobs in the community and it's you know like it's still helping the economy. I mean, because I think the fishing and the aquaculture industry in Ireland employs up to 16,000 people, like directly and indirectly. And like what I mean by indirect jobs is it's not just stemming from the fisherman boat or the aquaculture farm itself. That could be your truck driver to go bring the salmon or your mussels, oysters all over Ireland, that kind of thing. It could be, you could work in marketing, you could work in, you know, marine marketing, that kind of stuff. Or you could be a marine biologist like myself. There is a lot of people employed through it. Yeah, 
And then like with the oysters and mussels, you do education around that as well. And I'm just thinking when I was down and like, you know, I'd be looking out at sea to see what's on the water and like, like say like Oyster Haven. Um, yeah. I wonder is that, that, that like why it's called Oyster Haven. Um, and what I love well, about... Down in Beira, you know, the Beira, Beira Peninsula. I remember hiking yeah. up Hungry Hill there and I remember being up the top looking out and seeing all these circular pens and being like, what is all of that? But it, it's obviously farms, you know. The circular pens are salmon. They're always going to be salmon because they're out in the sea and yeah, they're always going to be there. If you see a, a mussel farm, a mussel farm, you'll see them kind of down in Banshee Bay, that kind of stuff. Baltimore, they have grey barrels. So they're large barrels at the surface of the water. So underneath them, that's your mussel farm. And then your oyster farm then is, we farm our oysters on the intertidal zone. And what that means is that's the area, the beach where the tide flows in and out. So your high tide and low tide. So we farm them there and they're placed on tables and they're in mesh bags. You, you won't see them on a busy beach. They have to be a really quiet beach. Um, so that's the difference, really. But Oyster Haven is in Kinsale, isn't it? Near, very, very near, yes. Yeah, I think the owner, from what I remember, I think I'm, I met him a few weeks ago, his name is Charlie. This is a, an example of a farm sh- shellfish providing... Um, so he, Charlie, basically, he provides all the oysters for all of Kinsale. So, like, that's... I mean, that's keeping jobs in the community. That's providing local fresh produce for your town I mean I don't think it can get any better than that that's the way I see it he provides to all it can sell like all the fish restaurants and stuff and what I love about mussels and oysters is they're filter feeders so what that means is they require no feed input from the farmers themselves so they'll feed naturally on the plankton and the phytoplankton in the water and they actually clean the water like one mussel they're tiny as well, like they're really small. So like one mussel alone can filter up to um, 65 litres of water a day. And one oyster can filter up to 250 litres of water a day. So it's, it's mad. I mean, it's crazy. Like, and I just love their, they're like, they clean the water and stuff. And if you have class A water, which a lot of the kind of Irish kind of coastline does, but sometimes you might, you might have class B you'll have to place your mussels or your oysters, especially in your, in depuration tanks on land. So that's in case they, because obviously they're filter feeders, so you might not know what they are going to be kind of saving in and out. So we can't say 100% that they're organic. So we'll place them in depuration tanks on land and the oysters will stay there for about 48 hours and they'll just save away and they'll kind of clean themselves. So they'll, it's naturally sterilized seawater. So they'll have ultraviolet light kind of pumping through all of that stuff. They'll place. They'll be placed in there for two days. The majority of our oysters are exported. They would be exported to France, countries like that. They're actually exported to like. Yeah, I know some of them are in five star hotels in like Dubai and everything. Like, because we have such fresh kind of produce here, and it's just it's top class. It's brought. They're brought over to Asian countries. See, what I like about oysters is, do you know when you're eating an oyster, they're still alive? A lot of people don't know that. Whereas if when you're cooking off your mussel, once they open up the shell, once they once you're frying off your mussels, they're dead. But a lot of people have your oyster raw. Because you like they so met they, they can survive out of seawater for a while, is it in the shell? Yeah, well see, that's why they're they're farmed on the intertidal zone. So obviously they'll be submerged in seawater. We have four tides during a day, two high tides and two low tides. So the oysters would be submerged for like obviously a few good few hours of the day. 
they'll feed away. And then when it's low tide and they are out of water, they're essentially, that's why I love oysters, they're essentially like holding their breath. So they will keep a little bit of seawater inside their shells so they're alive. Mussels will do the same. Like when you go to fishmongers, you get a bag of mussels. As long as they're not vacuum packed and they're already pre-cooked, they, the shell will be closed. They can last and they can live out of water for a few days. Oysters can live for a, a bit longer than mussels. So when they're exported across the world, they seawater, like they'll keep themselves alive for like a good few days. And then when you're opening them, I mean, they're as fresh as you're ever going to get them. That's the way I see it. But they're amazing. Like An oyster, essentially, for anybody who doesn't know, because obviously it's so different to a, fa- a salmon, like where you can see the eyes and the lips and the, like yeah. an oyster really, like what kind of an animal is it? Or It's just, it's shellfish. It's shellfish. So anything with the shell, same with the mussels and stuff. And I mean, they don't have a nervous system. So they're not going to be in pain or any of that stuff when you're opening it up. I mean, there's no eyes or any of that thing. I mean, luckily, so it's not like filleting um, a salmon where the salmon is kind of staring, staring at you through the eyes. I know it is a little bit, um, it's a bit nerve wracking. All right. But they're a bit of an acquired taste as well. Have you ever had an oyster cake? Yes, I have. And I've cooked it on the open fire. But I'm just thinking, do they like, you know, because it's just like a bundle of you know, you know, it's just like texture, but like, what do they have yeah. in them? Like they, do they have a stomach and, you know? They would essentially, I mean, it's not like humans at all. They would have a few kind of organs. They have the reproductive organs, that kind of thing. But the texture, I actually had some deep fried yesterday. Uh, I wasn't mad in the deep fried ones now, to be honest. And then I had some grilled ones with breadcrumbs. They were cooked. But generally speaking, chefs don't like, um, they technically don't like to cook them. They like to have them raw. So, I mean, it's a bit chewy. So, like, when I eat them, I'll have, like, maybe a drop of Tabasco sauce. Some people put balsamic vinegar on them or a wedge of lemon, that kind of stuff. But it's just getting used to the taste. Some people just knock them back as well. They don't um, chew them at all. But I'm like, here, look, you have to chew them a little bit. Like, you need to get some of the flavor out of it. And an interesting thing about the oysters as well is, depending where they're farmed along Ireland, uh, they can have like a sweeter or more briny taste. So I was in um, was in the Flaggy Shore yesterday and they farm, generally oysters are farmed for about two to three years, depending on how big you want to get them. But they farm their kind of oysters for two years. And when I was trying them, like they just had a really sweet taste and it was like a really mild taste. And then I was up in Galway. I can't remember where they got the oysters from. They were Irish anyway, but like it was, they were definitely a lot bigger. And there there's a lot more of a kind of briny flavor to them. They were a lot stronger. So, I mean, it depends where you get them as well. That's why I think it's so interesting. So depending if they're near an estuary and things like that, you know. And like for anybody who eats, because um, I know a lot of us do like tuna in brine or can you give a little um, advice on that or info like as in what is brine and actually just about tuna as well because you see you know every bloody deli counter in Ireland has tuna like and there have been I remember reading articles about recommendations of you shouldn't be eating it this many times a week and because it has this in it so would you have any advice on that? So I mean if you go and you get your tin tuna you go to your deli uh geez I'm not too mad at eating a deli so I'm not a big uh a chicken roll person <laughs> so <laughs> I just can't they just kind of turn my stomach at this point but like if you go I do eat tuna now I'll do it but like if you get your tin tuna that's kind of a mix it's not I can't remember the name of the species but it's not your yellow fin tuna which is the one you get your steaks your tuna steaks and it's not your blue fin which is really hard to get anyway I think it's really expensive at the moment because it's so overfished so 
your tuna would be kind of cured and then it could be placed in the tins and it could be placed with brine, which is just salty, salty water, or else it can be placed with sunflower oil. But the problem with tuna is because they're a predatory species, so they're really high up in the food chain in the marine habitat, is that obviously they're eating smaller fish and then the other fish below them are eating fish and fish fish. They um, can't break down mercury in their bodies. So that means the mercury that the tiny like fish are eating, it goes all the way up to the food chain. And then the big tuna, the big guy is eating all that mercury. So it's not being broken down in the body. So they do say mercury can kind of cause, you know, detrimental effects to the human body as well. So they do say don't eat a lot of tuna. That's why a lot of people as well, um, especially in Asian countries, a lot of people would eat sharks and, you know, shark fin soup and stuff like that, which I just do not agree with. The mercury and the iodine and stuff like that inside in sharks, it's just it, like it's huge because obviously sharks are top of the food chain, really. Like, I mean, I I mean, it can be toxic to the human body. So like I wouldn't eat a lot of tuna myself. Um, I would actually be I'd have an allergic reaction to yellowfin tuna and stuff because like yellowfin, it depends how fresh it is. They can have a lot of histamines in it, which can cause an allergic reaction. So I've had a few times now where I've eaten just the yellow pin, the better quality tuna as such. So if I eat tin tuna, it's absolutely fine. It's just so weird because it's different species of tuna. But if I eat the yellow fin, because it has a lot of histamines in it, you can have an allergic reaction. Same with mackerel as well. Mackerel can have a lot of histamines in it too. So I wouldn't be a big eater of tuna as such. Every now and again, I'll have a tin of tuna at home, but I give it to my dogs as well because it's great for the coast. I mean, the, like fish is really good for you, but... I suppose it's everything in moderation. That's the way I see it. I mean, you know, try go veggie. If you're a meat, you know, try and reduce your meat intake every once in a while. Try buy local produce. Keep it Irish, you know. I remember like when I traveled um, and meeting all different cultures and people living on the shorelines and just certain places, certain places I went to, like they would eat fish every day. Like when I was up in Iceland, I met people, they've eaten fish every day their whole life, you know, Um. Yeah, in Iceland, though, I mean, fishing is it's huge. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's that's. Did you ever hear the um, the cod wars up in Iceland? No. So essentially, the England, uh, the UK were taking all of um, Iceland's fish back in the day. I think it was like the sixties or seventies, and then um, that was all they had to live on. Like fishing industry was just number one in Iceland. So I think they started to. They were like, no. So basically he told the UK, you can't fish within like 200 nautical miles of uh, Iceland. I think it started off with 50 nautical miles and then they kept pushing out. And then they kept pushing out and ended up being like 200 or 500 nautical miles they couldn't fish around. I'm probably wrong about the nautical mile, the distance, but it was essentially something like that. And because that was all they had to live on and that was their biggest form of income into the country. So they are like big seafood kind of eaters. I mean... So is Spain. The French are massive seafood, seafood eaters as well. I mean, Ireland is quite low, considering we're an island surrounded by seawater. Uh, but Irish people are picky in what they eat. I don't know what it is. They just oh, love their yeah. mashed potato and their you know, bacon and cabbage, that kind of thing. But I just think everything in moderation. That's the way I, that's the way I live my life. But, you know, I mean, eat what you want, but just don't go crazy on it. Yeah. And so you are a big ocean chica. Like, do you get in as as um as as 
as going into the sea, like, do you go into the sea much? And like, are you into like, I don't know, diving or snorkeling or what kind of sea activities do you like to do? Um, so I'm currently based in Cork City, so I'm actually not getting into the sea as much as I would like to. And I was actually telling you, it's actually affecting my mood how little I've been around the sea. I'm such a big like nature person. Like it wouldn't even have to be the sea. I'd love I love being out kind of in you know woodland areas. So I definitely want to move somewhere a lot closer to the sea. That's my big goal right now. And then um, I've done scuba diving. So I have like my open water, which is like your basic scuba diving course. So I've dived a few places in Ireland. Haven't done it in a while, but I've dived up in Donegal, which is just amazing. There's so much life up there. And I've dived in like Galway, kind of Caro, kind of Connemara kind of site. And I've done snorkeling as well. I do, I have like all my kind of snorkeling gear. So I've done, um, where have I snorkeled? I think we've done Loch Hine or and then we've done a few places. I've done Noble Cove. I'm sure you know Noble Cove. How was East that Oh my God, amazing. You have to get a good day though. And it has to be calm because if it can be quite choppy there. Have you ever swam there? I've swam in the cove, yeah. It's divine. Yeah. The cliff, it's, the cliff surrounding is divine, yeah. Yeah, it's absolutely stunning for a snorkel. I mean... If you get a good day and the sun is shining, you have to get there early because by the time you go in the evening time, the sun will have set over the cliffs. You won't be able to kind of see as much. The visibility won't be good. But in the summer, yeah, there's a lot of kelp around that area. And if you kind of go out outside the cove and kind of stick to the cliff face, there's a lot of life. It's daunting. Like, I'm not going to sit there and go, I don't get a bit scared when I'm snorkeling in Ireland. I do. Like, it's like people who don't, I'm impressed. I, that's all I'm going to say because I still, even though I know exactly what's in the water, it's still a little bit, you know, kind of murky at times. And, but you have to kind of remember, like, what's going to eat you in Irish waters? There's not going to be much out there to get you. You might see a yeah, seal or actually, something. this morning, maybe you know, I was swimming away and I stood on something. It was really squidgy and it moved. And I was like, oh, what was that? Like, oh I don't God. know what it was, but it's like you can't see it. So it was small. My foot just went on the side of it and it just, I don't know, it went away. Oh, it was this, what do you think? Was it a starfish or maybe an, an enemy or something? It wasn't I mean, probably a jellyfish. It wasn't prickly. It could have been a, yeah, because it was very squidgy. I was like, oh, what was that? It could have been a moon jelly because they don't sting. Well, they do sting. They're just, unless you've really, really sensitive skin. Some people might go, like get an allergic reaction, but that's very rare. I still wouldn't go off touching them, by the way. They're still wild animals. That's where I see it. But, um, even though I just threw one into the sea yesterday. I found it washed up and I threw it in. That's different. He was stranded. <laughs> but I'd say it was probably um, uh, a moon jellyfish, I would say, is what you touched or stepped on. Yeah, and there's, there's, a, lovely, there's a lovely what? fishing village here and another, like, headland. You'll have to come down and I'll show you. Yeah. Um, but basically, like, I'd go snorkel there now in the summer and it's amazing. And, like, the last time I was out, I literally counted. I was like doing my alone little survey, like having a great time. 42 crabs. I was having a great time. And they're like, they're like that big, like. They're um, probably spider crabs, weren't they? Yeah. And the brown crabs are kind of decimated at the moment. Yeah. Loads of jellies. And then there was a guy, he goes in there now and again, and he has a big spear fishing gun. I see him coming in. I'm like, get out of the water. (laughs) Yeah. It's funny, right? This is the thing. Um, You're allowed in Ireland. You're allowed to catch your own fish with a spear gun or whatever it is um, if you have snorkel gear on. But if you have your scuba diving gear on, it's 
so illegal and I mean I swear to god if someone went out there and they were scuba diving because it's obviously you have more of an advantage when you're scuba diving uh so illegal but if you went out there and he was just snorkeling and he was kind of diving down then it's legal but apparently it's still kind of frowned upon I don't know right you're always going to find people who think you're doing right and wrong I think you're never going to please everyone and is it because like obviously if you're free diving you can get down quite a depth but obviously not as deep as a scuba like the tank would take you and stuff but is it because you can access bigger fish basically is it I'd say it is and you're down there for longer so you can kind of I suppose track the fish really yeah you can and I mean then it's not fair I mean you don't take the piss with stuff like that you kind of get your own dinner and that's about it really do you know um I would never go out and I don't have a spear gun anyway I don't even know what I'm talking about but I still would never do it anyway I wouldn't go out there on my own. I'm very cautious about the sea. I would never kind of go out snorkeling on my own. I just know what's like, I know in Ireland, especially like, I mean, the wild Atlantic way, it can just turn like that, you know, so you really do have to be careful and check your tides, check the swell, check what type of weather it is, you know, and just be aware. And then always let someone know you're out at sea. Yes, so important. Yeah um and that fishing village as well like when I go in there like I know I'm really bad because I'm always doing stuff on my own like but when I go in there like when I go like if I free dive down like and I'm down in the rocks the kelp like it could be like I don't know how long kelp is but it fe- feels like it's about one or two meters and I'm inside in it yeah. and, like you feel like you're in this you're in a like another realm and like it is yeah. when it's all over your face and your body you're like ah! And like it's kind of that it is, adrenaline yeah. and you're like where yeah. am I and then you come back to land and you're like people you don't know what's out there like you know it's amazing. just it's a different world like kelp is it's essentially an underwater forest do you know what I mean and it can, yeah, it can grow to like a few meters and things but like it gets it gets really big and then kelp it, what's really cool about kelp is it has its own kind of micro like habitat as such so it's like a mini habitat in there so like you'll have your tiny crustaceans like your crabs and you know your your bivalves so like all your kind of your shellfish and stuff or your mollusks they'll all be like living in there because it's obviously protection from other predators and stuff so kelp forests are of huge importance as well um to our oceans so like california in the u.s has like massive kelp forests i mean ireland has loads and people just don't realize what's out there you know, and in cold, cold water, which we have, obviously, Ireland is cold water. It's more nutritious and there's more life. There's more plankton in cold, deep waters compared to your tropical waters. Obviously, if you're Great Barrier Reef in Australia, but generally speaking, there's more life. So that's why you will actually see more kind of tinier little fish and your crabs and stuff. And because it's just full of plankton, full of life. Yeah. And it's amazing. I'm just remembering now all the dive, like, because I would have, I have never dived in Ireland like with scuba gear, but I've done in like Australia and like the Mesoamerican reef near Mexico, Honduras, like and the Galapagos, obviously. And like, oh yeah, you know, when you were talking about the shoals of the fish, like, you know, and I used to like, like go up tunnels and they'd be all around me. I don't even know what species they were, but the feeling of uh, it's just incredible, like to be in encircled in them, you know? Yeah, you know? it's a different I mean, world. And then, and then in the Galapagos as well, like if you ever get there, like the turtles, because the currents are so strong. Like the, my my instructor at the time was like, he's like, Kate, before you go down, you're going to really need to hold on to the rocks because it's a super strong current. And I was like, all right, you know, I have done loads of diving. <laughs> 
but I like seriously currents like the minute you'd go around the side of the rock you get blown away and I remember yeah, like looking yeah. up like this and clinging on like like this literally and there was just turtles like flying like this like like they were being shot out of the sky like I was like what <laughs> crazy it's like finding Nemo you know when they're following yeah. the um, exactly the yeah exactly That's yeah. Nice. Yeah. yeah Jesus I'd love to get to the Glaucus Asylum it's so diverse it's just crazy yeah that's amazing they also have you know the issues with the shark fin thing and you know I like even as you said it earlier like in Asia being over there as well like when I went to Japan we would have eaten I would have eaten fish all the time like but just when you'd go to the side markets then you'd see all the weird products and you're like what is all of that like their belief system that like bits of sharks and stuff can heal you and then when you talk about the mercury it's like maybe you're doing more damage than healing you know yeah, but the thing is, I mean, the ironic thing then, like about the shark fin soup, is actually there's no flavor whatsoever in shark fins. They you could just essentially be um, like drinking water, maybe whatever spices they throw into it. There's no flavor to it. They say like it's for medicinal medicinal uses. I can't I, like the thing is, I would never sit here and like bash another country's culture because at the end of the day, it's very easy for us as a Western kind of first world country to be like, how dare they? They shouldn't be doing that. They shouldn't be eating that. Seafood is like of huge importance to them. But I do think that, yeah, I don't agree with that as such. But look, it's very easy for us in a first world country to be talking crap about a developing or maybe not a developing, but just another person's country where that is of huge importance to them, you know? Yeah, I think it's just a lot of it is just informing them and educating them as well and letting them know as opposed to like just talking down about them yeah I just remember like when I was in the Galapagos like I I made a lot of friends there locals and the ships like after I'd left the islands like ships had come into their marine protected areas because it is a national park it's all protected like most of it and there was these fleets found like below water and stuff and they had like they had opened the bottom decks of the ships and there was like over I don't know like was it thousands like of you know all different species out of the Galapagos including hammerheads to all sorts you know and I was just like oh my god like and I in my opinion it's wrong like to to bring all your ships over I think they had found like 300 ships or something that had gone over from Asia into their protected areas I was just like oh god and that and the Galapagos as you know is like so unique in its diversity of animals and you know it's just like ah Fuck it. It's heartbreaking. And the thing is, I mean, if I think it is just look, it they're obviously they're dependent on fishing is so much bigger than what you know Ireland is. And I know, like I get it's you know, it's money and stuff, but I think as well, like if you just educated people and just said, Hey, this is you know what you're taking out and these are the effects that it can have on our oceans and things. But I mean, I swear, Kate. When there's money involved, it's very hard to change a person's perception of what they're doing. That's what I've realized, especially in the fishing industry and stuff. Yeah. Um, I'm conscious now of time. So mm. I was just going to ask, would you have something for people um, if they were to take a step or an advice regarding fishing or aquaculture or whatever um, to better care for the planet? Is there anything you could give advice to? Yeah. So like my thing, my kind of word of advice is, I love this fact because I think it's very interesting. Like by 2050, um, I think it's estimated that we're going to have an extra 2 billion people on our planet. So I think the population of the world now is 7.6 billion. 
means it's going to be about 9.8 billion. This means that we're going to need an extra 70% more protein from land and sea. So what I mean by that is more fish, more beef, more, you know, sheep, that kind of stuff. It means we're going to need an extra 70% more protein from land and sea that we're already producing today. We've like very limited land resources. We farmed as much of the land as we possibly can. I know people are looking at trying to um, farm up. So, you know, I think in Korea and stuff, they're building kind of greenhouses. They're going up like different levels, which is very interesting that kind of thing but like we need to start looking at new alternatives we've already fished to the maximum capacity that we can we're already taking out too much fish as it is this is where we need to like start looking at new alternatives like you know aquaculture because one thing about aquaculture is as well it has um, an extremely low carbon footprint what I mean by that is you're not guzzling enough diesel you're not putting a lot of co2 in the air that kind of thing and we use no one believes me on this but I'm telling you it's true less than 1% of our oceans are used for the aquaculture industry today. So I'm not saying go mad, go do that, but that's just a new alternative, especially because as a Western country, I mean, we get three meals a day, but developing countries, I mean, some kids would be lucky if they get one meal a day. We don't realize how lucky and how privileged we are, I think, living in Ireland. So I always try and get that through to kids as well. I'm teaching them. I'm like, lads, you're so lucky. You don't understand it. Like reduce your meat intake if you can. It's not always going to be possible in like, you know, the developing countries where fishing and aquaculture is of huge importance. But we need to be trying to help these developing countries and try to educate them on, I mean, acting sustainably and, you know, keeping food for future generations to come. And this maintains good ecological balance then when, you know, you're acting sustainably and you're not hunting something to extinction like the dodo. That's one example. I mean, the white rhino is another one. It wasn't hunted for food, but it was hunted for its ivory and things. Yeah, I just think look at new alternatives and don't be so negative when it comes to aquaculture because it actually is one of the most sustainable forms of getting your food at the moment. I mean, because I'm sure you've heard of the methane gas as well with your your cows and things like that. So and always like it's always good to reduce your meat intake. There's no and your fish intake. That's good. And buy local. I mean, in Ireland, we produce some of the best produce in the world. It's just all like extremely high quality. So buy local because that keeps your jobs in your local communities. It reduces the need for um, like single-use plastics and reduces carbon emissions because you're not getting massive transport. You know, like nothing has been kind of transported. So the CO2, that kind of stuff. And it, produ- it provides delicious, nutritious food and it's right on your doorstep. So yeah, they're my last words, I suppose. A lot of words. <laughs> Thank you, Anya. That's really helpful. And I'm sure... Uh, well, I just loved um, all the knowledge. I could talk forever about it. Um, and folks, if you do like this episode, um, please give it a share with all the ocean lovers out there. <laughs> and um, thank you to the patrons for supporting every month. Um, if you can't support, go on to patreon.com slash catch Kate. And if anybody is interested in my Be Wild event, Be Education, Forest Bathing, Growing and um, the event is taking place on Saturday, 25th of June. Um, so hopefully see you there. Um, and that's all for now. We'll talk to you again next week. Ciao.